Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, March 10th, 2021, and you're listening to episode 37. Today, we speak with David DeFazio about Wyoming whiskey. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Movies, TV shows, and books have taught us that most Wild West saloons looked remarkably similar to each other. Most common was the wooden front and boardwalk, a few hitching posts for horses, and two swinging doors that opened to the main bar. To accommodate many standing customers, the bar itself was lengthy, and the floors were furnished with wooden tables and chairs. Early saloons, however, didn't look this way. In the main, they were square wooden structures with tenting fabric thrown over the top. The canvas was just enough to prevent rain from soaking patrons. And the floors? Well, they weren't covered in wood. These tent saloons, in fact, had no flooring of any kind. Underfoot was naught but earth. When it rained, the floors turned to mud. And when the weather was fair, the floors were dusty. To see an example of these early saloons, look for an 1868 photo of the Keystone Hall in Laramie, Wyoming, in today's show notes. Early saloons really offered only two things, whiskey and a place to drink it. During these early days, whiskey in the American West was not what city folks from New York and Chicago were accustomed to drinking. Whiskey on the frontier was raw and made right in town or camp. Ingredients used to make these local drams included raw alcohol, burnt sugar, and sometimes even a little chewing tobacco. The hooch had terrible names, foreboding names, coffin varnish, red eye, and tarantula juice, which we learned about in episode 25. Wyoming is abundant with wildlife and rugged natural beauty, some of the best America has to offer. It's home to the Grand Teton Mountains, Devil's Tower National Monument, and Yellowstone National Park. Visitors come from around the world to enjoy its scenic wonders. And in the Union's least populous state, many bars and saloons cater to tourists by giving them a taste of a bygone time. Today, a typical Wyoming bar or roadhouse can be expected to have pine board walls, wood floors, and taxidermied animal heads towering over rustic bars, with old-time pictures and cowboy memorabilia on the walls, and, of course, whiskey. In places like these... Order a fruity cocktail garnished with a colorful umbrella, and you just might get laughed out of the joint. In 1880, on the Bozeman Cattle Trail, one could spy Buffalo Bill and Calamity Jane, as well as the notorious Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, tippling at the original Olympic Hotel Saloon. By the early 1900s, the Olympic was a fancy hotel and restaurant, serving the likes of Teddy Roosevelt and Ernest Hemingway. We've compiled a list with a link to more than a dozen of Wyoming's best bars and roadhouses in today's show notes. Check it out to learn more about these fantastic watering holes. Liquor laws have changed dramatically since pioneers and prospectors helped drive westward expansion. And although whiskey was made freely in the frontier's towns and camps, now one must apply for licenses and permits and follow many laws and regulations. Fortunately for Wyoming residents with a taste for spirits, opening a distillery is less cumbersome than in other states. Up next, we speak with David DeFazio, attorney turned whiskey man of Wyoming Whiskey. Stay with us. The Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection, has a YouTube channel. 
Eats, Drinks TV. Streaming now are Cocktails, The Grand Tour, Culinary Quickies, Music and Booze with Mo, V is for Vino, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey. New shows coming soon include Complete Greek, Mighty Fine Wine, and Spirits of Rum, a podcast featuring personalities from the wide world of cane spirits. Find us on YouTube at Eat Drinks TV and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, telling the story of food and drink, one taste at a time. For more information, visit culinaryculture.center. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, our guest is Mr. David DeFazio, founder of Wyoming Whiskey in Kirby, Wyoming. Welcome, David. It's an honor to be here. Now, you're talking to us this morning from Jackson Hole, and you're there for fishing? Uh, no, quite to the contrary. <laughs> at least not at this time of year. Yes, I do fish often in the warmer months and fish both here and around the state of Wyoming. But at this time of year, I guess that my target is the mountains and the boards that I strap to my feet to go skiing. Okay. Nice. It's all downhill from there. Absolutely. Sounds like my kind of time. We generally start each interview asking about your whiskey journey. And we wanted to know where you were born, where you grew up, and when did you decide that whiskey was your passion, and how did you decide Wyoming is where it would be? I would say it's a pretty non-traditional path. I was born just outside of Washington, D.C. in Falls Church, Virginia. Mm, I've been. Oh, you have? I've been. I stopped for a bite to eat on my way to Dulles. Ah, gotcha. (laughs) Well, I left when I was one. I moved to Erie, Pennsylvania, Ah. lived there for seven years, right next door to my grandfather. Beautiful place. And we lived in the country and my grandfather was my best friend. My mom stayed home, my dad worked. And then uh, we ended up moving to Louisville, Kentucky, the epicenter of the bourbon world. Mm -hmm. Well, Bardstown, obviously, but close enough. And then uh, moved to Albany, New York when I was 14, 15. And that's where my folks still are. I went to St. Lawrence University for undergrad. I went to Catholic University for law school. And then in between my undergrad and law school, I took a year off and moved to Jackson. I was a whitewater guide in the summers. I was a lift attendant in the winter, a total skid, as they say, ski kid. And then I went back to law school, continued to guide in the summer months just to regain my sanity. And then when I graduated from law school, I was lucky enough to land a job in Jackson in a husband and wife law firm run by Brad and Kate Mead, who are now my partners in Wyoming Whiskey. Ah, very good. Okay. Now, how did you go from lawyering to whiskey making? (laughs) Well, I had practiced with the Meads for three years where they taught me the ropes. And then after a one-year stint with another attorney, I started my own firm, which has since grown to four attorneys and a great office manager and whatnot. But in 06... Brad actually gave me a phone call in June and asked me if I would be willing to come by the office to entertain a proposal. And I rode my bike over and they were working at the time out of this very old home for Jackson built in the early 1900s and everything creaks and cracks and it's all wood. And I walked into Brad's office and Kate came in behind me, the door slams. Well, everything sounded like a slam back then. (laughs) And Brad looked me square in the eye and said, Kate and I have decided we want to make bourbon. And I laughed. And looked at Kate and she wasn't laughing. And I said, are you serious? (laughs) And he said, yes, I am. And I said, well, how the hell do you make bourbon? And he said, that's for you to figure out. You? Uh (laughs) I just invite you in and then lay it all out on you? 
yeah, as you can imagine, something like that, that literally is like lightning out of a blue sky, my brain just started spinning and, you know, how do I possibly tackle this? And this was what year? 06. Okay. 06. Tell us, did Cheyenne know how to license a distillery in 2006? They did. Oh, wow. Yep. There was already a statute on the books. There were no obstacles. It was paying a fee and submitting a form and you would get a manufacturer's license for the state. Your story is an unusual one. Yeah, it was cake. It was quite the opposite of most other craft makers at the time. So for our listeners, if you want to start a distillery, go to Wyoming. It's easy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was the easiest part of the process. And for a state that doesn't have many finished goods, and especially in nothing that says Wyoming on it, mm-hmm. uh, the state was very welcoming. And any new business in Wyoming is a welcome business. So like I said, that was the easiest component of it. Then the hard part was figuring out how to make bourbon. And so the first thing that I found was the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And Brad and I were lucky enough to be put in touch with some very wise individuals who had been in the industry for a long time, including Max Shapira, who as the owner of the largest family-owned distillery seemed to be the most perfect person to visit with about starting a new distillery. And he said to us, don't do it because it's going to cost three times as much, take three times as long, and be three times as difficult. Mm -hmm. And Brad and I left that meeting saying, screw that guy. (laughs) You know, he's worried about us. We're going to be competition, and we're going to do this no matter what. And unfortunately or fortunately, Max is right. Everything he said was right. And (laughs) we should have listened more closely during the 45 minutes that we spoke with him. Uh (laughs) So... Next, 2006, what happens? You get a license. Get a license. We've now visited with Max. We are introduced to Lincoln Henderson, who was still with Woodford Reserve at the time and was on his way out. He was retiring from that. And then, as you know, he moved on to some other things. Mm -hmm. But he was very kind in bringing us down and taking us through Brown Foreman and remember having a very nice lunch in the cafeteria there. And he introduced us to Rob Sherman at Vendome Copper and Brass. Mm-hmm. Turns out Rob and I went to high school for a year and a half together before I moved to Albany oh, wow. at Trinity High School is where I was. And then we got to designing a still. We had at first thought about just buying a six inch still and one fermenter and starting small. And then once we started looking at this, that didn't make a lot of sense. Uh-huh. It wasn't very scalable. And so we ended up ordering an 18-inch still with a 42-inch doubler behind it. Very traditional, you know, built on the classic Kentucky large-scale distillery model, which at the time, if you think about it, there were no craft distilleries in 06, 07. Correct. Right. Like template that we could follow. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we were really breaking trail on this. And what we did is we ended up taking a maker's mark type of a distillery and just downsizing it significantly. And that's how we got our start. So once we got that order placed, we had hired an architect. We wanted to design a distillery that resembled somewhat of a grain elevator, which is something that you would find out in the basin, the Bighorn Basin of Wyoming, which is where we located it. Mm -hmm. And we then needed to find a distiller, somebody who would run this, because I can assure you, if I was the one making the whiskey or if Brad was the one making the whiskey, you would have no interest in speaking to us. (laughs) (laughs) So did you even drink whiskey before all this happened? Oh yeah. I had a lot of Jack and Cokes in college and... uh, My dad actually is the one who introduced me to good bourbon. Okay. Okay. One day he sat me down at the house and he poured me some Elijah Craig 18. Ooh. And he said, this is not to be shot. This is to be sipped. 
and let's see if you're worthy of such liquid. And so I then figured out that whiskey is actually something to be enjoyed, not just to be consumed for a buzz. Good. So that's how it all started as far as really enjoying a good whiskey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but other than that, I was not passionate about it. So I know that it kind of goes against the grain of what a lot of these folks say as part of their story. But for me, the reason why this was so enticing is I am more on the creative side. Even though I'm a lawyer and things are all very rigid in the law, I consider myself to have a pretty strong creative side to me. And the opportunity to start something new and to put my stamp on something was irresistible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, when we have as many as we have here, which is to say five, which is to say most of your whiskey portfolio, we often taste as we go. So we're going to suggest that we talk about the small batch. Yes. Our flagship product. And when did this first come off? Like when was your first uh, bottling of this? December 1st of 2012 is when we launched small batch onto the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. We launched it too early. It was too young. Mm-hmm. And we were using the very first barrels that we had filled, which contained liquid that just quite candidly, we hadn't figured out the use of the still yet. You know, mm-hmm. we, we hadn't balanced everything out. And But it was all yours, nothing sourced? Correct. Okay. If you're going to call yourself Wyoming whiskey, there's no way you're going to fill <laughs> bottles. Right. You know. Not going to bring any in from Kentucky or the East Coast. Yeah, you can't bring whiskey from Idaho and Montana. I mean, that would just be, you know. Exactly. <laughs> worse yet, Kentucky or Indiana. Right. So, yeah, we stayed away from that for better or for worse. And we ended up filling it with product that was too young. And it was no one's fault but mine. I was getting so much pressure from the Wyoming Liquor Division, from retailers, from consumers who were just so thirsty for something that was truly Wyoming that we somewhat accelerated the release and we accelerated it by a year too quickly. Uh, so how long had it been sitting in the barrels? Three years, three months. Okay. Okay. And so legally it was okay, but not. Yeah, but it was raw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we had really high levels of acetaldehyde and just things that if we had waited a little bit longer and used barrels, you know, we should have just trashed the first hundred barrels that we filled because the still needed to break in. And Steve Nally, who had been with Maker's Mark for 33 years, was our master distiller. Okay. And, you know, he was just getting things figured out. And so it wasn't on him. So we ended up burning people, literally. I mean, they had a bad taste in their mouth from our first release. Luckily, that was a contained problem to Wyoming, even though we sold out of 3,000 cases of whiskey in 26 seconds. Oh, wow. Wow. Yep. It was the most successful or largest release in the history of the state of a new product. Wow. Wow. You must have some really good advanced PR. Yeah, well, think about it. If all you're doing is filling barrels for three plus years, Mm -hmm. you got a lot of time to talk it up. It's a lot of anticipation. Yeah, sure. So now, curious does not say straight, but all of it is from you. All of it's from Wyoming. It it seems to meet all of the requirements for straight. Your single barrel says straight. Your double cask says straight. Why is it that your small batch does not? Like I said earlier, you know, there was no template. Mm -hmm. You know, to what to do. Mm -hmm. And to us, small batch was an indication of fighting against Kentucky. While we pay homage to Kentucky and everything that it's done, we are defiantly not a Kentucky bourbon. Understood. And so we weren't big. We wanted to proudly say that we were a small distillery Mm -hmm. and small batch was our way of saying that. Okay. And again, I'm not saying it was the right thing to do, but it's what (laughs) we did. 
And we haven't sought to change it because it seems right still. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. We may be changing that when we do a slight label upgrade or refresh here in the next year. Mm -hmm. And I think you'll see the straight bourbon designation appear on the label. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, small batch just made sense to us. Sure. And I think now, if we were starting now, we wouldn't use it because small batch is just... It's such an overused yeah. and undefined term. Undefinable, I was going to say. Yeah. 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 Tasting this, the nose just welcomes you right in. Mm-hmm. It is, I hate the term smooth, but it is super smooth on the palate. Goes down very easy. I think this is a great, I mean, it's a great bourbon on its own, but it's a great introductory bourbon. Yeah. It's got a very light burn on the finish. Very, very light. We've been told it's very sessionable. Nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good word for it. Yeah. And I'm sure you have already discovered all this, but our base flavor profile for all of our products is a caramel orange vanilla. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. I don't know whether you can quote the mash bill, but what is it at least roughly? It's exactly 68% (laughs) corn, Uh 20% wheat, and 12% malted barley. Okay. All right. Everything's non-GMO. We made that decision at an early stage because it just felt right. And that's one of the decisions we got right because I think the importance of that has grown as people become more and more aware of the whole genetically modified element. Sure. Right. Now, the small batch is 44% ABV. The single barrel, which presumably is the same juice, is at 48. Correct. Is it the same juice? Yes, it is the same juice. Okay. When Steve and I sat down and we were talking about where to proof our small batch, he said he wanted it to be somewhere in the mid to upper 80s. I wanted to have a little more alcohol to it. And I agreed, as did Brad and Kate. And then I just kind of jokingly said, well, how about 88? And the reason why I said 88 is I graduated from high school in 88. Mm -hmm. And it was just kind of a passing thing. He goes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I said, okay, we'll go with 88. And then once... I looked into the TTB requirements for a cola. You know, you have to place the ABV on the label and it's 44 and Wyoming turned out to be the 44th state admitted to the union. So it was really perfect. Wow. Another identifier. Wonderful. Yep. So we went with 88 on small batch and we our very first versions of single barrel were also at 88, but we decided that that was too watered down. Mm-hmm. And single barrel represents the top 1% of all barrels found during a summer tasting season, Okay, mm-hmm. which can range anywhere from 8 to 14 barrels, mm-hmm. just depending upon what we find. It's remarkable how distinct the taste is, the single barrel taste is, how distinct from the small batch it is. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's dramatic. It is. And small batch at this point is really intended to capture a much wider range of drinkers. It's something that can be sipped neat on a rock with some water or in a cocktail. And it, you know, it's on the lighter side, as you said, it's a weeded bourbon. Mm-hmm. I think it holds up really well in any type of uh, citrus cocktail, mm. anything somewhat fruity. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be my first pick from our portfolio for a Manhattan or something boozy, mm-hmm. but that was the, its purpose. Mm-hmm. Single barrel is designed to capture the barrels that represent excellence when it comes to quality, but they all, each barrel, as you know, is going to have a slightly nuanced flavor profile depending upon where it came from. Of course. The warehouse, depending upon the wood and all that. So, What I think is interesting about this, I mean, I'm sure that my bottle is probably different than Philip's bottle since it's a single barrel and who knows if the bottles were next to each other on the shelf or not. But looking at the two together, they have a very similar color profile. 
and a very similar legs drippiness on my glass. And I can definitely smell the small batch in the single barrel. But it's like if you take a sniff of the small batch and then a sniff of the single barrel, it's like small batch on steroids. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, I love it. What's your barrel number, Carrie? Mine is 6,010. Let's see, where is that on the back? On the reverse. Oh yeah, no, mine is 6,010. Okay. All right. So we're sipping the same. There is a chew. One can chew this. The mouthfeel. Oh yeah. It's a velvet chew. It's wonderful. Yeah. And that's part of it is we wanted it to be somewhat meatier. You know, we wanted it to have a little more body to it. And when you're drinking our single barrel, we want it to be something that's truly special because number one, it's not very available. And like I said, when you're only finding maybe a dozen barrels a year, that's not very much to spread around the country. I usually fight for a disproportionately high amount of it for Wyoming because this is obviously our number one market. But we want it to be something that I've always said, this is what you hide from your friends and give to your dad for Christmas. Right. Right. That's right, what the right. bottle really is. Right. Well, it is. I mean, as we give our listeners an idea of the saga behind getting to today, David, we first spoke, I think, in late November, early December about getting you on the program and you enthusiastically accepted our invitation. And then came the saga of actually sourcing the samples for tasting. And the single barrel was the last to come in. And this is because quite a lot of your product is highly allocated. Yeah. Yes, it is. And with small batch, it's generally available. Mm-hmm. Outrider, which we'll get to in a second here, is also not as available, but readily available. And then all of our other specialty products are very highly allocated. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we can, it's not like we could just turn up the volume on it. Uh-huh. You can't make more of it. And I would love to have 10 times as much single barrel available, mm-hmm. but you know that would mean we would have to drop our standards and the overall quality. I was going to say, David, just go chop some trees down, start with your own <laughs> barrels. You know, it'll be an easy process, really. <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> a couple of three months ago, we interviewed Julian Van Winkle and he said, listen, we're just here making whiskey. We have nothing to do. You know, all of the secondary craziness surrounding our product. He goes, we just make as much as we can. We can't make more. And it's a situation that is more common than people know. Right. But that makes it coveted. Sure. So if you can hold out and get these special bottles, I mean, mm-hmm. literally we've had these other four bottles probably a month yeah. at least, I think. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then we didn't get the single barrel till last week. Right. Right. We literally had to push this meeting, what, twice because we didn't have it. So. Yeah. Yeah. But how worth the wait is this? Worth the wait. This is a magnificent bourbon. Totally worth the wait. Yeah. Now, the next one we're trying, I've been eyeing on, as I said, you know, for the last month because it has these two words at the right side that says all I need to know and it says sherry casks. So I'm ready to try the (laughs) sherry finish. I'm a big Speyside Scotch sherry finish cask girl. So I'm going to give this a little nose. Ooh, yep. I can smell the sherry on that. So our double cask came about after Steve Nally had left and we needed help on the nosing front and we have had the tremendous fortune of having Nancy Fraley be our master blender, taster, overall superhuman. Mm-hmm. And she's come up before in this series. Yes. Yeah, she's amazing. She's a legend. Yep. And we're very lucky to have her come around and hang out for a week at a time, probably three or four times a summer. And after we had our small batch and our single barrel and we had Outrider on the way, I asked her, I said, you know, how about a secondary maturation? Do you think that's something that we should sign up for? And what we didn't want to do is mask the base product, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of products that you find on the market are matured a second time because they're trying to hide something. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an imperfection in there and you know, sugar really hides a lot. We didn't want to do that. 
you know, we had a good base product, an excellent base product, and we wanted to just see what could we use to complement it and really pull out the best flavors. And she picked Pedro Jimenez Sherry Casks because she had worked with them before. Knowing our product and flavor profile intimately, she thought that that would be the best complement to it. Mm-hmm. And so what was interesting is, is we procured a number of barrels. I'm sure you guys know the history of these sherry casks and how old they are. And mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Some of them are just literally falling apart. The Solera system, we are literally tasting something that might just be a few molecules, but we're tasting something that was the first thing to fill that sherry cask. Exactly. And because of the Solera system. Yep. Yeah. It's a fascinating history on sherry cask, which, you know, you could dedicate an entire show to that alone. But when we got these barrels, we learned that each barrel that we purchased was actually an amalgamation of two barrels and they would pick the best staves from two barrels in order to make one. And so we bring these barrels in, we fill them for the first time. And on the eighth day of maturation, they were delicious. And on the ninth day, they were ruined. Oh, Wait, is that like something to do with Hanukkah? Isn't that a ninth day? <laughs> it could be. I never made that connection. Something. <laughs> I don't know. But it was fascinating how tannic they became. And it was like chewing on a piece of bark on the ninth day. Oh, Lord. How much did you waste? Five barrels worth. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so we refilled them back into our barrels and hope that they heal mm-hmm. someday. And then moving forward, we just had to be much more vigilant as far as tasting them daily to make sure that we didn't pass that threshold. Okay. What a hard job to have to taste daily. I don't know if I'd want to do that job. So <laughs> it would be awful. So we're talking right at about a week is the finish on these. It was. When a barrel is that fresh, it took very little time to mature. Uh-huh. But now it's more of a three-ish week process. Okay. And we're about to buy some newer or newer. We're about to buy some new to us barrels because (laughs) barrels that we've been using. Some less ancient barrels. Yes. Yes. They're they're worn out. I think we've squeezed every last bit of life out of them. Okay. All right. Again, same base juice. Do they all have the same base juice for the bourbons? Everything but Outrider. Okay. Small batch, single barrel, double cask, yes. And then private stock, yes. Okay. One thing I wanted to note about double cask is we decided to go at 100 proof Mm -hmm. because we wanted it to be a very robust product. This is our shot at a dessert whiskey Mm -hmm. or a whiskey that would be just an absolute kick-ass Manhattan whiskey. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, certainly. It's that sherry, you know, it's like a whole new ingredient that you bring into it. And we've done a number of tastings, as you can imagine, over the years. And when you mix Manhattans with all of our products Mm -hmm. and you put them side by side and you allow people to taste them, Double Cast turns up as the winner almost every time. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I suggest we go back to the brand talk and the growth of the brand before we move to Outrider and private stock. Sure. First off, what's the order of release of these that we've tasted thus far and how did you come to them? What's the evolution there? It was all a very natural evolution, but just as things came up, we did them Mm -hmm. and there was no master plan. You got to think about it. We're three attorneys. You know, my partners are fourth generation cattle ranchers. Mm -hmm. And I'm a guy from New York, from upstate New York and a skier. And we didn't have a plan on any of this stuff. Like I said, there's no playbook. And the Wyoming way, the rancher way is you kind of take things as they come and you just adjust. And so we let the barrels do the talking. That's the best way to say it. And when Nancy said, hey, you've got some really exceptional barrels here and it would be a shame to blend them into small batch. Mm -hmm. I think you should do a single barrel. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, then that's what we're going to do. Okay. What year did the first acceptable, (laughs) if you will, small batch appear? I would say 14, early in 14. Okay. 14 and then single barrel? Not long after. Okay. I don't have a calendar out to tell you exactly, but I would say within the year, single barrel came out. All right. 
And then meanwhile, we had Outrider aging. Okay. So kind of taking it out of order of release, but telling you kind of what the natural progression of things was, is mm-hmm. I had asked Steve early on, right after we started making weeded bourbons, I said, hey man, I think we should make a rye. He said, I don't want to make a rye. Well, what do you mean, man? I, I'm reading the trade publications and there's a little blip on the radar that shows that people are starting to pick out rye bottles again. And yeah. Now it's on fire. Right. Mm-hmm. So you got to go back to 2009, is when I started talking to him about this, which was right after maybe 2010 was we started distilling in 09. And so he said, I don't care. I, I think rye sucks. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> All right. You got two big rye fans here. <laughs> right. Well, you got to think about it. Steve Nally was born in Loretta, Kentucky, right next to the Maker's Mark Distillery. And the only bourbon that he thought was worth a damn to make or drink was a weeded bourbon. Okay. Right. Maker's Mark. Yeah, of course. And so to introduce the idea of a rye whiskey into his world was just sacrilege. You know, he couldn't stand the thought of it. And I said, well, Steve, I really think we should do this because the consumer is what matters. It doesn't matter what you think or I think, but I really think we should do this. And no, he said, and technically he worked for me. Mm -hmm. Right. But you don't tell a guy who has 33 years of experience at Makers and is the Bourbon Hall of Fame what to do. Mm -hmm. Plus he's a big man. So is that when he left? (laughs) No, believe it or not. It was three years later. Okay. I wore my partner out and convinced him that we really should do this. And so he called Steve and politely but firmly asked that he make a rye. Mm-hmm. So, Did you tell him that there, there might be a place in the Rye Hall of Fame for him one day? <laughs> I don't think he cared. <laughs> there should be a Rye Hall of Fame. There should be now and we should be in it. I'll tell you that. Okay. All right. And this right. story would be the opening story. But So just as, as we talk, go back to the release of these different things, uh-huh. meanwhile, these barrels are all aging. There was 200 barrels of a rye bourbon that he made, and there was 100 barrels of, quote, rye mm-hmm. that we had laid down. So I didn't ask him to do it again, but he made that all in November and December of 2011. Mm-hmm. So then he got back to making weeded bourbon. and It's got a beautiful color. It's a little darker than the others. It's a lot older. Yeah. And so I'm going to jump to it in a second, but he left three years later. So it was around 14, I think, is when he left. Mm -hmm. We brought Nancy Fraley on because we needed that expertise. And I asked her to try the Outrider. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Outrider at the time. I asked her to try the two different rye products. You said there was a rye bourbon. Are you talking about a high rye bourbon? It was 68-2012, but the 20 was rye. Okay. Okay. And so I was expecting that this was going to be swill, that he had intentionally made poor stuff. (laughs) I was pleasantly surprised when (laughs) Nancy called and said, David, this is some of the best young rye I've ever had. Some self-sabotage. Yes. Okay. But we'll get there. Don't you worry. (laughs) So I said, well, don't pull my leg. She goes, no, this is fantastic. And at that point, it was three years old. She said, this is outstanding for its age. I said, all right, we'll keep an eye on it. Oh, it is. It's delicious. Year later, it's four years old. She said, David, this stuff's ready. And I said, well, we're not going to make the same mistake twice. Everything that leaves our distillery is at least five years old. So it'll give us time to come up with a label and get a marketing story behind it and all that. Little did I know that the story would present itself as a result of the next phone call I would make. And I called Sam, our distiller, and I asked him, hey, man, what's the mash bill on that rye? And he goes, you're not going to believe it, but it's only 48% rye. And I was like, that can't be right. Do the math again. He goes, I've done it six times. (laughs) And I said, well, damn. And I started to panic because we don't have a rye. Uh-huh. We've got a straight American whiskey at this point, mm-hmm. and we've got a really good rye bourbon, as we call it. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? So Nancy and Brad and I and Sam all huddled up and figured out that what we could do is stretch the soup, so to speak, and we could do a two-to-one blend, two barrels of our rye bourbon to one barrel of the almost rye, and that would be an American whiskey. <laughs> mm-hmm. And 
it was great. I mean, it was a really good juice. I just tasted it. Whatever version this is, is really good. It is really good. And so that was the next thing to come out. So that would have been the third product that we released. Ah, okay. All right. How did you come up with the name Outrider? It's so cute. Well, that's the very end of the story. Okay. (laughs) And I will tell the, I will make it quick. I wanted to call it the Bastard Batch (laughs) because- It was just so unusual for what we were doing and whatnot. Kate Mead said over my dead body, are we putting a curse word on our label? (laughs) Which I made three runs at it at the behest of all of my coworkers. And it's a technical term. Yeah. And I was told that you will be fired if you ask again. (laughs) So I was like, I need inspiration, you know? So I called Steve finally, and he'd been gone for a couple of years at this point. So we caught up, exchanged all the pleasantries, and finally I said, hey, man, I want you to know that rye you made is spectacular. He goes, good. I'm really happy for you. <laughs> we're having a hell of a time. Don't be excited about it or anything. <laughs> right. He said, I said, but we're having a hell of a time naming it because we don't have a rye. I mean, why did you decide to only use 48% rye? He goes, because I told you I didn't want to make rye. <laughs> So it was intentional. Yeah. And I wanted to call it Defiance. Nice. That would have been appropriate, but there was already a Defiant whiskey on the market. And so I went to Brad and we talked. And as a rancher, you know, there's all sorts of cool terms that you can use. And and the Outrider is actually a horseman that rides the flanks during a cattle drive. And it made a lot of sense because the flanks are where the cows are trying to squirt out mm-hmm. and get away and they're strays. And these barrels were kind of looked at as these stray barrels. Mm-hmm. Hence the Outrider name and using the Y to suggest. With a Y. Yeah. Nice. No, beautiful. Beautiful. So what you have in your hands is an eight-year-old version of it. Okay. It's delicious. Because everything was made in November and December of 2011. Wow. Well, I think it's very lovely. Okay. So this is the original supply, but you're still manufacturing this. We didn't manufacture it for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And then we started making it again, 16 or 17? Mm -hmm. 16, I think. And so we've got younger juice aging that is coming along nicely. And we will be using that in upcoming Outrider blends. Okay. With the same defiant mash bill. <laughs> we changed the rye to a true rye. It's 51% now. Okay. So okay. the mash bill on the rye was 48% rye, 40% corn, 12% barley. Mm-hmm. That has been adjusted to 51% rye okay. and 37% corn. All right. So what we have here is something that will cease to exist. In that form, yes. Mm -hmm. But I mean, originally, I got to tell you, the purpose was to let it ride off into the sunset. And I know that sounds somewhat cheesy, but we were going to continue to fill barrels at a rate that we chose. And when it was completely empty, then we were done with it. Mm -hmm. But the following has grown and that has really become our Halo product. Wow. I mean, I can see why it's delicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy good. Are you going to call it rye or are you going to call it American straight? It'll continue to be a straight American whiskey. Okay. All right. Because it'll be the same type of blend. Uh We do not have any immediate plans to release a true rye. Okay. All right. We don't want to confuse the consumer. We Outriders is too good. Why would we try to steal any of the spotlight from what we consider to be, you know, maybe our best product? Sure. Sure. Now I see that it's bottled in bond. How did you arrive at that decision? Oh, yeah. Again, upon Nancy's suggestion, we wanted to hit that 100 proof mark. Mm Mm-hmm. And at that point in our evolution, we were reading a lot of stories, hearing a lot of news about these, quote, distilleries that were sourcing juice from MGP and other places. And we wanted to put another stake in the ground and say, hey, we're making all of our stuff. 
And so the bonded notation on that really puts an exclamation point on that statement. Mm -hmm. And we met all the requirements, even though we're using two different types of whiskey, it was still made in the same season by the same distillery, Mm -hmm. you know, in a bonded warehouse, all that stuff. Right. With the new one, or will it still be bottled in bond? No. With the amended mash bill? It won't be because the whiskeys that will be put into that product will have been made in different seasons. Okay. So that's what destroys it. Sure. Sure. Are you intending to release more bottled in bond bourbon or rye in the future? If we can, we will. We're making a lot more of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, this sells out in Wyoming. We had a tremendous increase in the last year in demand, and we're going to run out here probably in two months, and there won't be any more available until uh-huh. September. Yeah. Because like like rye, anything bottled in bond is on fire. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, would we love to keep this in its exact same form and have an endless supply of 2011 whiskey? Of course, Mm -hmm. you know, that Mm -hmm. would be great. Sure. But this was a flyer, you know, we were trying something different and it turned out to be spectacular. Yeah. So if I could go back in time, I would have asked Steve to make 10 times as much as what he did. (laughs) This first appeared in 16? Yes. Okay. And then the double cask, when? The double cask would have appeared shortly after, uh, probably within a year after that. We were trying to do one thing a year. Mm -hmm. And so double cask came out then Wyoming to start. And then we didn't have a partner like Edrington back then. We were just going on our own and trying to gain distribution, which as you know, is an absolute impossible task when you're a small distiller. Edrington is your distributor now, correct? Technically not our distributor, but our representative and our partner. I mean, they bought into us a few mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. Okay. As a result, we have plugged into their distribution system. And so we've got an army of commercial team members across the country who are highly trained and know everything about us. And they're the ones that are putting the leverage on the distributors in their areas. Okay. And, so you're in that yeah. family now. Okay. Yes. And so, yeah, when you're a family member of McAllen and Highland Park, mm-hmm. uh, you tend to get some attention. Sure. Right. 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 No, that's great. That's great. Okay. So after Double Cask, what was the next release and why? I'm going to throw one other product in here that you don't have access to because we don't have any of it. Mm-hmm. And that's our barrel strength product. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. We released that in 2014 because we found two barrels that were so much better than anything else in our warehouse then Nancy said, you've got to create a whole new product for this. Nice. And so we did. And we created barrel strength. And it was barrel, each barrel, one was 116, one was 120 proof. As you probably have noticed with our whiskeys, they don't drink to proof. Mm-hmm. A 100 proof product tastes like an 85, let's say. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah. Barrel strength is no exception. You normally, I normally, if picking up a bottle of something that's 116 proof, would somewhat shy away from it. And I would add it, maybe an extra cube of ice mm-hmm. in order to let it, you know, bring it down. Yeah. Our barrel strength tasted like honey. It was unbelievably smooth. And I like you, I don't like overusing that word, but unbelievably smooth and no real bite, mm-hmm. even though it was at 116 or 120 proof. Mm-hmm. It was tremendous. And in the spring of 2015, Whiskey Advocate named us one of the top 10 whiskeys in the world. Wow. That's wonderful. Now, I'm looking at the the private stock, and I've noticed a lot of things on the bottle. First of all, there's some handwritten stuff. Yes. So our private stock program is the last product to come about, and that was in response to, well, basically, we saw that it was my responsibility to constantly keep a finger on the pulse of you know what's next, what's next. And the private barrel programs that some of the major distilleries were doing were 
in some instances drying up, they weren't offering them anymore. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it, you know, as a company that doesn't have a lot of money to hire a sales team, this was a way to get retailers to act as your sales team. Because if you get them to buy a barrel, they're incentivized to hand sell once the barrel hits the floor. And so that started after Outrider and Double Cask. And so we had a couple of accounts. There's one account here in Jackson uh, called The Liquor Store, and they have to date bought over 20 barrels from us. That's a lot. Yes. And they fly through them. Yeah. Okay. I don't know of any other retailer that has helped us as much mm-hmm. as the liquor store. Okay. And so they fly through it. And there's a number of others, you know, that have picked up on this. The Cowboy Bar on the town square, you know, has bought at this point probably seven or eight barrels and the Mangy Moose and the fine dining group here. I mean, we've done so well here locally. And then what I call the tumbleweed effect happens. Tumbleweeds spread seed as they unroot and blow across the plains and the seeds get deposited as they travel. Mm-hmm. We have such a strong tourism market here in Jackson that people will pick up these very unique bottles and then bring them home. Mm-hmm. You know, and if that could be California, that could be New Jersey, that could be Florida, that could be wherever. And then those stores get asked, well, how about, you know, do you guys carry Wyoming whiskey? Then the poll starts to happen. And then they say, oh, you have a private barrel program. So we have started the private barrel program. Now, this is 116.6 proof. Is this cask strength? Yes. Anything in our private stock program that is sold outside of Wyoming is only cask strength. Okay. We don't cut it at all. All right. Again, I just sipped it. It burns nowhere near 58.3 ABV. Nowhere near. Yep. I would say that's one of the hallmarks that we've found. Mm -hmm. And you know, I hate talking and telling you what to taste and what we are, because I think anybody who knows whiskey knows what we are. Mm -hmm. But if there's one piece of feedback that I get more than anything else, it's that. Uh It's that, man, it, it does not taste like the proof that's written on the bottle, but I assure you it is. Yeah. Yeah. Again, very easy drinking, very rich, very complex. There's a lot going on there and all of it pleasant. Wouldn't you agree, Carrie? Yes, all five of them are pleasant. Oh, yeah, very much so. What's on the horizon? What can you share? Sure. We've got one exciting project coming up here in April, which I cannot get into details right now. I've not been allowed to share that, but I would ask you to keep your ear to the ground because that will be the largest marketing effort we have ever run Mm -hmm. with some very exciting details associated with that. But what I can tell you is that it is all to benefit the National Park Foundation. Wow. Nice. Nice. Okay. So that will be coming out with one product that will be available in five markets. And then because of a very special auction that we will be doing, there's going to be some very unique stuff that is going to be sold at very high dollar amounts. Okay. So in the nearest future, that's what's going to be happening. This summer, we'll continue our Wyoming only releases. We've done these in the past. Ever since the eclipse happened four years ago, we've done Eclipse, Steamboat, and Steamboat is the name of the horse that you'll see on every Wyoming license plate. It was the horse that couldn't be ridden, but Claire Danks is the only guy that ever did. Okay. We did the Statesman, and then we did last year Hole in the Wall to celebrate our outlaw history in Hot Springs County. Mm -hmm. And then this year's product uh, will come in at 95 proof. All of these are slightly higher proofed, and if you like single barrel, this would be a blend of, I hate using the word blend, a batch of 12 barrels 
of very rich juice that comes primarily from the middle ricks of the warehouse. Mm -hmm. So it has a little more complexity than what you'd find at the bottom, but we don't have any of the top barrels, none of the spice, Mm -hmm. none of the cinnamons, none of the all spices or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that would be a batch of single barrel type of barrels to come together to form what is personally my favorite product to come out of the hard distillery right there with single barrel. So mm-hmm. that'll come out right around, it's been July 1 in the past. So I would say that that's probably when it's going to come out. Okay. And that's our Wyoming only release. And you'll be looking forward to this season's Outrider as well. Okay. Fantastic. All right. And one more, Wilderness. Wilderness. Okay. Wilderness. Yeah. Two other things I can tell you about. Wilderness is a product that last year was intended to be sold in Yellowstone only with the intent being with the sale of each bottle, $5 goes to Yellowstone forever. Mm -hmm. Nice. Because Yellowstone's summer was so uncertain, the vendors in the park chose not to bring in any new products, which was totally understandable. Mm -hmm. So we ended up selling this in our gift shop in Kirby and it sold out and we made a donation to Yellowstone forever with that product. I have some calls lined up for next week to visit with the vendors in the park to see if we can get it moved into the park for this season. Okay. And again, purpose of it will be to raise money for Yellowstone forever to help supplement the funding for Yellowstone. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. Presumably it's a foundation, a charitable foundation that exists to support Yellowstone. Okay. Exactly. And then finally, I think it's fair to announce this. We're going to be doing a maple finished bourbon. Okay. Oh, good. We can talk to you when that comes out because we're going to be doing a flavored series. Great. Yeah. I'd love to talk to you about it. Now, will this be fortified with maple or will it just be an X maple barrel? These will be barrels. These will be our barrels mm-hmm. that were sent to a maple syrup manufacturer who used the barrels and washed their syrup through it mm-hmm. and sold the syrup as a bourbon finish. Okay. We then bring the barrels back and we use our own barrels that are, have now been treated with the maple syrup mm-hmm. and introduce our bourbon into it for a period of time, mm-hmm. which that'll be just like our uh, double cast. We're just going to have to monitor it every day. Okay. Until we think it's right. Sure, sure. And of course, there'll be wet barrels, presumably. Yes. Um, so yeah, you, there will be maple in the whiskey. Yes. Yeah, in some measure. Yeah. 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 And it, we don't use any artificial flavoring on anything mm-hmm. that's against our ethos. So mm-hmm. that's what's on the future. I mean, we don't really like to launch a bunch of new stuff, but I think that these are natural progressions. And you might see the return of Stargazer, which was a whiskey shop release only, mm-hmm. which was intended to celebrate the lunar landing a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. It's the darkest of all of our bourbons, literally in color. And that was the purpose of it. And it's very chocolatey and fantastic product. Oh, okay. I'll have to see if I can get myself one of those. You just found some barrels that happen to taste that way. When Nancy tastes through hundreds of barrels, you know, at each sitting, when she finds something that is unique, she lets us know about it. And we decide, well, can that fall into this category or can it? Mm -hmm. So she was just over the moon on that one. Ha ha. Ha ha. (laughs) Sorry. Shall we talk cocktails? Yes. Sure. I know when we talked earlier about the small batch, you started talking a little bit about some cocktails. Did you want to expand on that with what you think your expressions would be good in? Absolutely. So we've had the the benefit of working with some really fantastic people in the cocktail world in the past. David Kaplan, who started Death & Company, is from Jackson. Yeah, David's been a good friend. 
personally. And so we were privileged to work with the Dethan company and proprietors crew. And since then, we have worked with a number of local bartenders. We've done bartending competitions, both in Wyoming, and we have reached outside of the state to Boise and Aspen. And so we've generated some just absolutely kick-ass cocktails and the menu that we have. And then Kim Barger, who is my right hand, basically, an absolutely spectacular human being, is a fantastic bartender in her own right. And we have just these great cocktails that she comes up with as well. And we readily share them all. Mm-hmm. Do you serve them in the tasting room? Uh, no, we don't, actually. We have not done that in Kirby, and it's something that we may do in the future. We don't know. But it's just not the necessarily the right thing mm-hmm. to do over there. The distillery is so far away from any type of major. I mean, it's 12 miles from Thermopolis, which isn't a big city to begin with. And we haven't wanted to contribute to a drinking and driving thing. Mm-hmm. And there's no cabs over there. Uh-huh. So we've stayed away from that. All right. But our small batch is really all of our products. I would say that's going to be the basis of most of the cocktails that we make mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because to some extent, why mix in single barrel into a cocktail? It's just so damn good by itself. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would deploy single barrel in the same ways that I would deploy small batch, which both would be in one category, double cask. Like I said earlier, Manhattan, mm-hmm. Manhattan, that's the drink for that base spirit. Yeah, I would suggest maybe a neutral vermouth. I mean, all vermouths are very aromatized. A lot of botanicals there, but I would suggest a neutral one so it doesn't do battle Mm -hmm. with the essence of the double cask. Sure, you can definitely have too much stimulus in a cocktail. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, if you just walk into a bar and Wyoming is not on the back bar, what do you gravitate toward? I've always loved Four Roses. Mm Mm-hmm. Four Roses, to me, their small batch, to me, has been one of the best bourbons on the shelf, especially at the price point. Mm-hmm. I've always gravitated towards that. Makers, as well, if we're talking in that like price range, yeah. I'll tell you that the best dram of bourbon I've ever had in my life was a Maker's Mark Black Label. Okay. It's only available in Japan. Ah, okay. Because Steve was the master distiller, I was able to get my hands on two bottles in my life. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. I hid it from my friend. As you should. (laughs) Yeah. Well, funny, we recently interviewed Denny Potter. Black did not come up. Well, you need to bring up Black Label and see if you can get your hands on two bottles, one or three. Okay. One for each of you and one for me. (laughs) (laughs) See what we can do. We'll talk to Denny. We'll see whether we can leverage the relationship. I have a question that has nothing to do with cocktails and nothing to do with whiskey, and that is your graphics. Oh, yes. I adore these labels and that logo, that WW, that locked, that intertwined logo. It's just, mm, it sticks with you, which is kind of the idea. But can you speak to us about the evolution of that? I just think it's remarkable. Sure. We work very closely with a company named 77 Ventures. And Mike Hage is the guy that began that company. He's been in the advertising industry for a long time, and he rightfully went out on his own to start his own company. And he's got a group of people working around him that are just the best. Jeff Hale is the designer who ultimately brings all of the ideas to life. And the Double W was kind of an obvious thing to do for us from the beginning. But when you bring that idea to a firm like that, they start saying, okay, we should make the Double W resembles the mountains to some extent Mm, because mm -hmm. of the mountains, Wyoming. And so you'll see that interlock versus a laid over. I mean, instead of one W on top of the other, 
they're laced like fingers, you know, yeah, and they're, they're in an embrace, if you ask me. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the Wyoming and the whiskey are embraced, they're interlinked. And so oh, there's a lot of symbolism there if you really wanted to dig into that. And then we wanted it to be a, like a cattle brand because we didn't have any history as a company, but we had history as the Mead family. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to tie in the cattle brand image to some extent without getting too, you know, kitschy. Mm-hmm. And 77 was able to do that. If you flip the bottle upside down and you look on the bottom, you're going to see two T's stacked on top of each other. That is the Mead Ranch cattle brand. Oh, wow. That they still use to this day. Oh, yeah. Nice. That's wonderful. So that's in there. The embossing mm-hmm. on the glass. Yeah, the Wyoming on one side and whiskey on the other. I championed that part hard because I'm a fly fisherman. And so when you're walking in creeks around Wyoming and wherever, you know, you find these old glass bottles on the shore and whatever. And I remember finding one that was an aspirin bottle mm-hmm. and the label had long ago evaporated into the soil. And, sure. But the glass itself had an emboss in it that said aspirin. Uh-huh. And yeah. I was like, that's what we need. You know, a hundred years from now, it would be fantastic for somebody to be walking through and find a bottle and it, it, they'll know exactly what the product was. Yes. And it also made it look older than it was because we were brand new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to capture a little bit of that with our bottle. Yeah. And the seals, the paper seals yep. across the cap. Kirby on one side and Wyoming on the other. Yep. And we use that as a talk about not knowing what you're doing. <laughs> we wanted to do the tax stamp look mm-hmm. and it just made sense to us. And it's still sticking to that old school kind of look. But we started putting the strip stamp side to side and we had lunch at a place in Kirby. It's a restaurant that used to be there. It's no longer there called Butch's. And we were sitting there having a burger at the bar and looking up and Every bottle had the stamp going front to back. And we realized, oh, when it's stacked behind another bottle on a shelf, you can't see the label, mm-hmm. but you can see the neck. Yes. Mm-hmm. We literally went back to bottling that afternoon and changed it up and went front to back. So if you ever see a bottle that's batch one that goes side to side, it was before we had that revelation. Okay. All right. Yeah. Very cool. Beautiful. Yep. Seeing things learned along the way. Yes. Yeah, so what else can I tell you? It's the bottle itself. The name of the bottle, we call it the Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. Yay. <laughs> Cary, Cary, not Cary. Yes. We wanted the bottle designed so that it would never like fall over regardless of the fill line. Mm-hmm. And if it happened to fly off the end of a bar when it was slid down, it might not break when it hits the ground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was the design feature of it or design directive. And as you run your fingers up the side of the bottle, you'll feel there's a flare at the shoulder. That was done in consultation with bartenders who said, you know, sometimes your hands are wet. Yep. And when you grab a bottle, it could slip right through your fingers. But if you add a little flare there, you'll catch it. Yeah. That little bit of extra leverage can make the difference indeed. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then the neck has a slight swell to resemble a pot still. Okay. Very good. Nice. I am impressed with your entire operation, identity, ethos. Oh, and your products. Wow. I'm just, you know, I mean, look, we like pretty much everything we cover, wouldn't you say, Carrie? Yeah, pretty much. But there are those that stand out amongst the others. Well, you're very kind to say that. And I had some trepidation coming into this interview, candidly, because (laughs) you had very well outlined that we want to hear the passion, you know, and why was your passion whiskey? And my story is a little different personally and the meats. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a passion for whiskey as I was growing up or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you that ever since this opportunity was handed to me so graciously by the Meads, 
it has become my passion. Mm -hmm. And this brand is as much a part of me and I'm a part of it as anything in my life. Mm -hmm. And so I've given it everything that I have and the Meads have as well. And I would say the biggest component that they've poured into it is this ranching history, Mm -hmm. this honesty. And I think the word transparency gets so overused. And I think honesty is really the best word. And there's nothing that we've ever done that we've had And when we screwed up and we bottled it too young, we owned it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was our mistake. And we told everybody that. And I think that meant things to people. Mm -hmm. You know, we actually bought back a number of cases from retailers throughout the state and replaced it with older product. Mm -hmm. You know, we do things right. At least we like to think it's the right thing to do. We're not always right, but we try. And I think in this day and age, there's so many stories that are just fabricated and there are these contrived products. And in our opinion, the juice needs to do the talking. And let's not try to take away from that. Let's let it lead. And we just follow and mm-hmm. dance our way right onto the shelf. Well, that's the way to do it. Cool. Okay. Well, very good. Well, this has been fantastic. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. And we can't wait to see what's coming in April, for sure. And try all the new stuff that you've mentioned. And yeah. We'll look forward to having you back. Yeah, I'm honored to have been on the show and I'll come back anytime you want. Oh, very good. And I'm happy to talk about what we're going to be doing in April. That's really going to be an exciting thing for us. Okay. And by no means is it an all endeavor. Okay. Awesome. Indeed. All right. Well, thank you very much, David. A pleasure. Thank you both. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. Hey. Do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right. The project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Or search for our campaign, Whiskey A Chef's Journey, at gofundme.com. That's gofundme.com now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. (laughs) Let's. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, Louise, nice to have you back. Today, we are going to talk about Wyoming whiskey, which is very intriguing to me because I find that Wyoming is such a beautiful state. They have come up with their own brand of whiskeys, and um, I thought they were all pretty good. What do you think? Oh, I very much enjoyed them as well, and thank you for introducing me to the Wyoming whiskey distillery and all of their various expressions. I mean, very much can see how a nip of whiskey with those beautiful vistas and that type of climate is just something that I need to add to my agenda prontissimo. Uh, ditto, ditto. I'm going to say ditto for that. Everything that I see, every picture, every video, it's like I always want to go there. And then on top of it, they have a lot of great skiing and I'm a big avid skier. So we should go. You know me. I will go anywhere and everywhere. So keep me posted. Let's do it. Okay. So which one did you pick? So I am going for the Wyoming Private Stock Whiskey. Now, obviously, 
I have nothing to compare this particular version of the private stock to because I have not tried any of their other versions of this whiskey, right. but I liked this one. Yeah. It made me think, I want to just drink it straight. And I like the idea of a bison burger with this. Oh, yeah. You know, one of the, well, in the food world, when you think of what you're going to eat when you're out West, you know, I think of bison, I think of elk, I think of all those like large animals that people right. hunt, you know, and farm out West. And bison is one of them. It's one of our North American, native North American animals. You know, it is a meat that's lean. Mm -hmm. So as I was thinking about this in a burger, you know, I don't want to overpower that type of meat with with any with a cheese that's too strong. Right. So I was thinking something mild, like a very mild, melty cheese, like a, a Havarti okay. with some nicely caramelized onions Ooh. to bring out the sweetness of the spirit, some drunken mushrooms, you know, saute up some mushrooms, splash a little whiskey in there, get them nice and drunk. And then when you're building your burger, have a couple really beautiful, you could use brioche. A lot of people like to use brioche for a bun, whatever type of roll you're looking at. And then a few sprigs of arugula, a burger like that, little nip of this whiskey, maybe after out riding horses or skiing, watching the sun go down through the Bighorn Basin. I, I mean, to me, I've just painted like the picture of what I'm doing there whenever it is that I get there. That sounds really good. You just got to be really careful when you're dealing with bison because like I said, there's not very much fat. It's right. a very healthy meat. And so one, uh, one thing that I have noticed when I have had either bison steak, bison burgers, or, you know, had it in a number of different preparations, oftentimes it is lacking. You can't, you have to be careful and not overcook it because right. like I said, it is so lean, it will go dry very easily. Now you can add some more fat to it. You can add maybe some, you know, rendered pork fat. You yeah. could, of course, always add bacon, which I adds say, fat, yeah, but bacon. to me that's, it's a cheat though. I think that's a cheat. Yeah, yeah. I am not a big fan of adding bacon to things when, when it's going to take away from the thing you're right. adding it to. Now I usually, I'm usually pretty good when it comes to my barbecuing skills aren't as good as my smoking skills, sad to say, because I always, I have one of those thermometers that you just leave in the meat, like right in the dead center. So as long as you know what temperature the meat is supposed to be to get to the medium rare or whatever um, temperature you want it to be, if you want it to be out, you know, as long as you follow the thermometer, it's usually okay. It's when you don't pay attention can get bad. But and I and I don't generally. I mean, meats take so much less time on a barbecue. I usually end up by the time I go, oh, I should probably stick a thermometer in this, and then I'm like, oh, too late. It's already well. <laughs> well, the thing about doing the thing about doing a burger is if you're just doing it on a grill and you just have some soaked wood chips that you throw in as you start the process, a burger oh, yeah. take a handful of minutes yeah. per side. Yeah. If you just yeah. give it a little kiss of some smoke, then you don't have to worry about overcooking it. Yeah. Well, this sounds amazing. And I actually was going to go to Costco later and I know they sell bison burger there. So I think I might pick some of that up and I might try that this week. We'll see how that goes. We'll have a little fun with the smoker. Sounds like a good time. All right. Well, we'll catch up with you next week with our next whiskey. Until then. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. 
Sign up to become a VIP member of Spirits of Whiskey. With your membership, you'll have access to listen to our series, The Malting Floor, be able to watch extra video content related to past episodes, and you'll enjoy access to our webcast series and other spinoffs not available to anyone else. Enroll now by making a monthly donation at anchor.fm slash spirits dash of dash whiskey. Click on the support button and select the contribution level that's right for you. Once you've submitted your payment information, visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com to create your personal VIP profile. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Slanchava. Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.